Well, let me invite you to turn in your Bibles to Psalm 35. Psalm 35. As a new pastor, assistant pastor in your midst, you might wonder how in the world do you choose what to preach from? Well, your senior pastor is a very well-organized man. Uh, not long after the decision to come, I received a, uh, a whole series of email files from him, uh, including a long history of everything he had ever preached or thought about preaching or I think was planning on preaching until the year 2018. And also there were some files concerning the preaching of John Carroll, uh, who had come before and had been in the, the, role, the role that I'm now playing uh, in aiding and abetting uh, Fred's ministry. And so I decided after prayer and talking with Fred that I would pick up where John Carroll left off. Uh, my understanding is that he preached through Psalm 34 right before his retirement, and so we pick up there at Psalm 35. Hear the word of the Lord. Contend, O Lord, with those who contend with me. Fight against those who fight against me. Take hold of shield and buckler and rise up for my help. Draw the spear and javelin against my pursuers. Say to my soul, I am your salvation. Let them be put to shame and dishonor who seek after my life. Let them be turned back and disappointed who devise evil against me. Let them be like chaff before the wind with the angel of the Lord driving them away. Let their way be dark and slippery with the angel of the Lord pursuing them. For without cause they hid their net for me. Without cause they dug a pit for my life. Let destruction come upon them, come upon him when he does not know it. And let the net that he had hid ensnare him, let him fall into it to his destruction. Then my soul will rejoice in the Lord, exulting in his salvation. And my bones shall say, O oh Lord, who is like you, delivering the poor from him who is too strong for him, the poor and the needy from him who robs him? Malicious witnesses rise up. They ask me of things that I do not know. They repay me evil for good. My soul is bereft. But I, when they were sick, I wore sackcloth. I afflicted myself with fasting. I prayed with head bowed on my chest. I went about as though I grieved for my friend or my brother, as one who laments for his mother. I bowed down in mourning. But at my stumbling, they rejoiced and gathered. They gathered together against me. Wretches whom I did not know tore at me without ceasing. Like profane mockers at a feast, they gnash at me with their teeth. How long, O Lord, will you look on? Rescue me from their destruction, my precious life from the lion's. 
I will thank you in the great congregation, in the mighty throng, I will praise you. Let not those rejoice over me who are wrongfully my foes. Let not those who wink the eye or hate me without cause, for they do not speak peace. But against those who are quiet in the land, they devise words of deceit. They open wide their mouths against me. They say, aha, aha, our eyes have seen it. You have seen, O Lord, be not silent. O Lord, be not far from me. Awake and arouse yourself for my vindication. For my cause, my God and my Lord, Vindicate me, O Lord my God, according to your righteousness, and let them not rejoice over me. Let them not say in their hearts, Aha, our hearts desire. Let them not say, We have swallowed him up. Let them be put to shame and disappointed altogether who rejoice at my calamity. Let them be clothed with shame and dishonor who magnify themselves against me. Let those who delight in my righteousness shout for joy and be glad and say evermore, Great is the Lord who delights in the welfare of His servant. Then my tongue shall tell of your righteousness and of your praise all the day long. Let us pray. Our Father and our God, we pray that you would open your word to us now. It is a true and a sure word inspired by the Holy Spirit. But we ask, O Heavenly Father, that we might see more of what it means. Help us to grasp the true truth here, that we might live to your glory. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Well, the book of Psalms is a treasure-filled book. It is one of my favorite books in the Old Testament. It is a book that ranges through the whole of human experience. Every emotion, thought, and feeling that you might ever have passed through your life is somewhere in the book of Psalms. And so, the Psalms are for the common man. But they're not just for us as a written text, a set of poems. They're the hymnal of the Old Testament. They are part of the hymnal of the church. These Psalms were meant to be sung. To be sung before God in worship. To be sung to one another. To teach and to help us learn and to teach not only ourselves, but also our children. Oh, on our lips and on our hearts, the inspired words of the psalm, psalms are for God for us from the inside out. But there's a much neglected fact when it comes to interpreting the psalms. And that is that as a sung text, the psalms have been treasured by the people of God in all ages. From the time they were written, all through the life of Israel, through the time in the tabernacle complex, the time in the temple, the time off in exile in Babylon and in the return and restoration, 
down to this very age in which we live, the Psalms have been precious and been sung by the people of God. And each and every one of these psalms psalms was sung by our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. He inspired them through his prophets of old. And when he took on flesh and dwelt among us, he took these psalms upon his lips. He sang them with melody in his heart, in praise, in synagogue worship, and also in the temple. He sang the psalms with his disciples. He had been taught them from a very young age. That would have been part of the duty of his mother. As he hung around the hem of her skirt, as it were, that he would begin to learn the basic psalms here that he might join with the people of God in public worship and singing them. And so when we interpret the psalms, we always need to remember that they are appropriate to be on our lips and also on the lips of our Lord. And that helps us to understand the meaning and import of much of this book. Oh, if you go through the New Testament and you ask the question, what Old Testament book is cited and quoted more as pointing to and giving evidence of the deity of Christ and his ministry and resurrection and ascension? The answer is easy. The apostles turn over and over again to the Psalms as Jesus himself did to point to his life and ministry. And so as we come to Psalm 35, it is natural that we approach it as common men and common women, that we come to it and and we see themes and feelings and ideas that resonate in our own experience and we interpret in that way. But it's also important that we remember Jesus and that these words were also on his lips and for our blessing and benefit through him. Here, as we look at this passage together, we'll see that only the Lord vindicates his people. Only the Lord can vindicate you. Now, as we first come to the text, it's the complaint of an individual to the Lord. You know, uh, my father on the door of his office at home has a number of little witty sayings, and one of them says, uh, please file all your complaints on the supplied form. And then there's an arrow to a microscopic little box. Here the psalmist is writing in big letters on a parchment for everyone to read. In verses 1 and in verse 7, he makes it clear that he is innocent and he's calling on God for help. Contend, O Lord, with those who contend with me. Fight against those who fight against me. And down in verse 7 he says, For without cause they hid their net for me. Without cause they dug a pit for my life. Brothers and sisters in a fallen world, the psalmist is here teaching us and the Holy Spirit who inspired him that all is not right and well with the world. It's a fallen world full of fallen people. And God knows those who have been wronged. You see, victims are real. There are victims of crimes. There are victims of oppression. There are victims of injustice. The Bible gives us ample evidence of all of those. And here is a very personal and pointed individual bringing a complaint to God about Uh, bad persecution that is happening to them. We have to remember that victims are not 
totally pure and righteous and holy people in the main. Uh, Victims are those who are a part of a fallen world. And they're sinners, therefore. And as sinners, they can still be those who receive a blow or a pressure or an injustice which far outweighs anything that they themselves have done on that note. There is something of a comparative community standard that's being applied here by the inspired psalmist. He's pointing to his enemies and he's saying, Lord, I am innocent of what they're charging me. Even though the one who brings a petition is one who is subject to the wrath and the judgment of God for his own sins and foibles. But that's not all that we hear here. Next, we hear the phrase, may the Lord fight for me. That's in the opening three verses, that little section paragraph. After verse 1, we continue to read, Take hold of shield and buckler, rise up for my help, draw the spear and javelin against my persecutors, say to my soul, I am your salvation. And this is not the psalmist's mother that is being addressed, or even the psalmist's father. This is God, His heavenly Father, that He's speaking to. Who do you turn to in times of trouble? When the pressure's on, when you break an arm, who do you think of in the moment of the cracking? Well, when I was growing up, it was my grandmother. She was the lady who could seem to solve almost any problem. But you know, as you grow older, you learn that the only one who can really solve all problems is God. And so you do well to cry out to Him more so than any beloved person on the face of the earth. Oh, God is just and mighty, and He is able to avenge the wrong. And that is something that we as evangelical Christians need to grasp deeply. God is mighty and able to avenge the wrong which we suffer. And undergo. God can level the table in ways that we can't understand. We go through burdens and hardships in this life. We might be driven to despair and to the edge of just throwing our hands up and and giving up of any hope of justice and joy and satisfaction. God is able to vindicate. Here, uh, there's a whole series of weapons that are referred to. Spears and javelins and shields and bucklers. All of these things involved in mortal combat. The psalmist is asking God to use these instruments against those who are opposing him. And since he's under inspiration, this lets us know that God's not a pacifist. He's fairly streetwise and able to look after himself and you and me. He is able to apply pressure and influence. But far beyond the art of diplomacy, he can wield the sword in the most most breathtaking of ways. We need to remember the fact that God is mighty and able to flex his muscle for us so that we will not cower in a corner or think that he does. There's nothing that he can do in this life to help us. There are a number of so-called professing Christians who take that kind of position. There are a number of reformed people who sometimes have a view of God that 
has been referred to as a reformed deist view. Oh, they've got the sovereignty of God down as a, as a doctrine. Oh, they understand the doctrine of election and predestination. But at the end of the day, their view of God is one who is not active in their lives or in the life of the world at all. He's just the great planner tucked off in the far courses, uh, corners of the universe. No, God is real. He's busy and active. And he is able to swing the sword and to slay the opponent of his people. The psalm is very clear and very emphatic with this kind of military, firm call for judgment. Uh, Verses 4 to 8 speak curses upon the enemies of the people of God. Let them be put to shame and dishonor. Let them be turned back and disappointed. Let them be like chaff before the wind. Let their way be dark and slippery. Let their destruction come upon them. What more can the psalmist be inspired to say to get our attention and help us to see and know and understand that God is mighty and that He is a mighty warrior for His people? God's not a pacifist and the psalmist isn't either. And we do well to see God as the one who fights for us. For that is particularly what the psalmist is calling him to. Verse 17 says, How long, O Lord, will you look on? Rescue me from their destruction, my precious life from the lions. I will thank you in the great congregation, in the mighty throng. I will praise you. And it won't just be vain. Praise the Lord's that he throws out. It will be content-filled. Praise the Lord, he swung the sword and he cut the head off of my enemy. That's the texture of this psalm and the kind of strong imprecatory note that it sounds. You see, this means that the girls among us, the girls growing up and the young men as well, need to understand that a fallen world is not filled just with Prince Charmings who come along on white horses. Life is not always so easy and nice and sweet. Every doting old man is not a Santa Claus who just wants to give you gifts. It is a fallen, broken, and dangerous world in which you live. And you need someone to ride with you who is strong and able to wield their sword and defend you. And that someone is none other than God. Now, that's an important message for us to grasp. It's important for us as individuals to see that when we face not just disappointment, but when we face injustice and oppression, when people treat us wrongly, when they lie and cheat and steal from us, God will level the table. He is mighty and able. It means that you and I don't have to come to blows with someone over everything because they're going to have to deal with our Heavenly Father at some point. This is especially true uh, concerning the widow and the orphan. God loves the widow and the orphan in His church, and He cares for them in a mighty way. But there is more to this psalm than just that sort of analysis. For you see, there's this little pre-verse up at the beginning that we failed to read. Psalm 35, it says, of... David. 
This is in the early section of the Psalms. On every hand, the Psalms are written by David, the king prophet. David himself here has taken pen in hand under inspiration of the Holy Spirit, and he has dipped that pen in the ink many times as he's written these 28 different verses. And David is writing with a strong and a quick hand because he is the king of Israel and he is taking his complaint in song before his God. David had many reasons to have confidence in his heavenly father, even when he faced enemies in the land and around it. He was one to whom had been promised a great role in redemptive history. And so with boldness, he could go forward. Even when those around him had hearts which melted, he could be a tiger or a lion, knowing that God would see to it that a son of his who was righteous would sit on the throne forever. There's nothing more fearsome than a king who does not fear death. And David was one who we never see cower in a corner. But his sword is drawn. He learned the lesson with Goliath. The bigger they are, the harder they fall. You never feed the bear. He'll eat your food and then he'll eat you. And so David opposes the enemies around him by again calling to his heavenly father. The nation has apparently, according to the first three verses, been unjustly attacked. And he's calling upon his heavenly father to fight for his people, to fight for his chosen people. David is the fighting king. And so he's used to battle. In your Christian life, are you used to battle? Are you used to battle not with a physical sword or uh, with a javelin that you can throw so many yards, but with angels and powers and principalities? Do you know the fight that you must engage in for the good of God's people and the good of the world in prayer? Do you understand that that struggle of soul, uh, whether to despair and, and to give up in a hopeless lump of tears or whether to clench your jaw and set it in determination to follow the will and word of your heavenly Father, come what may. Oh, these, these are the kinds of things that epic kings are made of. And God here shows us in the life of David through an inspired text what sort of men and women of the Lord we should be. Apparently, according to verses uh, 1 and then 19 through 21, uh, there's some sort of treaty promises that have been broken. There's some surrounding nation, some other body, which is contending with the leader of Israel and with its people. Someone's broken a covenant or a contract. Someone's not lived up to some sort of national treaty. And they are coming with false accusations against David and the people of God. And so what does David do? He cries out and contends with his heavenly father first that he's innocent of this charge, that they have not done this false thing of which they've been accused. There is a native enmity or tension between the people of God on the one hand and the seed of the serpent on the other. It's not surprising that in this national dimension, that there would be a tension between Israel and the surrounding nations, that they would mistrust them, uh, that good and righteous 
motives and reasons for action would be seen as in a jaundiced sort of way if you were a Moabite or a Canaanite or a Gergesite or one of these other peoples of the surrounding nations. If you were the king of Egypt, you might not like and you might be suspicious of every move that someone like David would make. That would be your worldview from the throne of Pharaoh. Or if you're the king of Syria, or the king of the Assyrians or Babylon, you might look askance at whatever economic or foreign policy or treaties or relationships which Israel established. David, as the king and leader of his people, knew that in the midst of these national struggles, because redemptive history was on the line, and that the future of the coming Messiah to save both your people and all the world was hanging in the balance that he could cry out to his heavenly Father and that he would answer with a mighty and strong and powerful hand. David here challenges his heavenly Father to keep his covenant that he had made with the people of God through Abraham their father, that he had made even with David. God, my Father, don't neglect your covenant, but keep it by defending your people. That's the basis on which he calls for shame and dishonor and disappointment and defeat and a slipping and a heavy falling to the ground on the part of God's enemies. It's not just that David's mad or he's been hurt or he's upset. There's a bigger broader umbrella of covenant and kingdom concern which motivate him. And so he turns to God in the strongest kinds of terms. But this psalm is not just one for world leaders to read or even for church members to think about in the relationship between Israel and the church today. It's also a psalm which was sung And so, little Jewish children down through the ages sang this psalm, as did our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. This psalm was on his lips. It was a psalm on his heart. And so, here we see and hear the Messiah crying out to his heavenly Father for vindication. Is Jesus not the suffering servant for his people? Contend, O Lord, with those who contend with me. Fight against those who fight against me. Now think for a moment. David was a figure in redemptive history foreshadowing and pointing to the ministry and life of Christ in a fundamental sort of way. Jesus is the prophet, priest, and king of his people. And David foreshadows two dimensions of that as the prophet king. He is the forefather of Jesus Christ. Jesus is the fulfillment of His particular aspect of the covenant of grace. And so, since David pens this, and since David experiences this, and then Jesus sings it, we know instinctively that it has something to do with the life of Jesus. But our Lord doesn't leave us just suspecting and wondering. In John chapter 15 and verse 25, he takes this psalm on his own lips and he wraps himself 
in the major theme as a garment. He says, whoever hates me hates my father also. But the word that is written in their law must be fulfilled. Then he quotes verse 19 of this psalm. They hated me without a cause. By that quote, all hermeneutical debate is ended. And we see that this psalm is messianic and that it is about Jesus Christ our Lord. And because it's about Him, therefore David, in the providence of God, had a life that mirrored and pointed to Jesus in some ways. And that we ourselves also, because we are in Christ and united to Him by faith and by the Spirit, we too have some experience of the content of this psalm. If they have hated me, they will hate you too, Jesus said. If we're His faithful disciples, we will run up on the same cast of characters which, which, with which He Himself had a collision. You remember who His enemies were, do you not? He speaks of them by character in verses 12 through 16. They repay me evil for good, my soul is bereft. When I was sick, when, but I, when they were sick, wore sackcloth. I bowed down in mourning. But at my stumbling, they rejoiced and gathered, and they gathered together against me. They gnashed their teeth against me. Who were the enemies of Jesus? The Pharisees, the Sadducees, and the Roman stooges who drove the nails into, their, into his hands and feet. Jesus Christ was opposed by the majority of the religious authorities in Jerusalem in his day. He was opposed by the wise and the powerful and the influential, those with political connections on the one hand and those with a great knowledge of the Word of God on the other. And what did our Lord pray? Vindicate me, O God, in verses 9 and 10, and then also in verses 27 and 28, we see that He looks forward to the defeat of His enemies and the vindication of His cause. As Jesus is living His life and singing this psalm, He looks through the suffering of cross and to the resurrection and down through the ages to the point at which He will come again. And all of the Pharisees and all of the Sadducees and even the Roman guard who wielded the hammer, what will they do? They will bow the knee before Him and they will confess that which they refuse to confess with their hearts. Their lips will acknowledge that He is God in the flesh and Lord of all. And then they will hear those words, Depart from Me, you accursed ones, into the Everlasting fire prepared for the devil and his angels. Jesus will have the joyful vindication of the resurrection and of that day of judgment in which he will pronounce what is true about them and his angels will carry out the execution for sure.
Oh, your Savior will not be left in shame. He has come forth from the grave and ascended to the throne of heaven where all the angels adore His name. And He will come back and will be seen for who He is. And His enemies will tremble at the look of His face. Oh, He will win in the end. There's so much more I wish we could say. I wish we had time to say. Jesus triumphs. And yet we who are united to Him face persecution now, even as He did in His earthly ministry. Why didn't God vindicate Him immediately? Why did He have to go through the suffering of the cross? Why the, uh, why the shame of, of being in the grave for three days and then come forth? Why these delays of His vindication from the hand of His heavenly Father? For the same reason that we face delay in our vindication as we face persecution and those which hate us because we love the Lord. Both from outside the church and even as we saw this morning from heretics within the church, those that really don't know the Lord and love Him, there are, are, are a series of pressures and persecutions which Christians face. And Christians cry out to their Heavenly Father as Jesus teaches us to here in Psalm 35 and David before Him. And God does not always and immediately answer in the way we would like Him to do. Because He is busy. He is busy in a fallen world making changes. He is busy building His kingdom. He is busy triumphing over the forces of darkness, applying His cross to every corner and aspect of society and life. If we suffer for the cause of Christ, then we cry out to our Heavenly Father, and He will answer in His good kingdom time that we undergo suffering for the gospel means we fill up the sufferings of Christ. And that we undergo delay and waiting for vindication until His chosen hour for it. It is a privilege of being a Christian that the kingdom comes first. Oh, Christ is the King, and the gates of hell will not prevail against His church. And He will not slumber or sleep, but rather in the fullness of time, as God sent forth His Son into this world, so He will have our vindication shine as the noonday. And you can count on that. Let us pray.